save the world and change the world and do all these great things. And that's good and all, but and we'll talk a little bit about kind of vision and, and where the church is going and what we want to do, but, but I want to do something a little bit differently. I just want to pick up a book of the Bible and start preaching through it. That's all I want to do. Why? Because I think it's going to set an important precedent and kind of convey what I understand that the Bible says about preaching. There, there are all kinds of different styles of preaching out there, right? You, you know this. There's not just one type of preaching. There, you have all these guys that are, that are really charismatic. They're really dynamic. They can really fill and captivate a room. They give you a lot of really good ideas, and they're very innovative, funny stories, and great sermon titles, and cool videos, and kind of all this stuff. I'll give you all this good advice. I'll give you five keys to fixing your marriage, or, or ten steps to your best life now, or kind of all of these great things, and, and that's, that's fine. But I understand the Bible to, to speak a little bit differently about preaching. And there's no one verse in the Bible that says this is what preaching is. But, but it seems that as you, as you read and study, um, biblical preaching, what is often called expositional preaching, it's quite simply preaching that explains and exposes God's Word. Preaching that explains and then opens up and exposes God's Word. It's preaching that is committed to taking a passage of Scripture, explaining that passage, and then applying it to our lives. So expositional preaching just means that the meaning of the sermon is the same thing as the meaning of the passage of Scripture that it's coming from. That's it. So if a pastor is just picking whatever he wants to speak on every week, what are you getting? Well, you're getting what the pastor wants to talk about. But if you pick up a book of the Bible and work through it, you're letting God kind of set the pace and God speak through his word. And we don't get stuck listening to Matthew's hobby horses. We, we go through the whole Bible and we see what God has to say to us through his word. It's a very good thing that God determines what we look at and talk about uh, compared to what I would determine. Honestly, it doesn't really matter what I have to say. Because we as Christians, right, we believe that this is God's word. And that God's word is, is without error, it is living, it is active, it is powerful, and that faith and salvation come through hearing God's word. So, if that's the case, who cares what Matthew has to say? Let's, let's see what God has to say through his word. So my first Sunday here at Woodside Community Church, I want to make it clear that my ministry must be all about and completely dependent on the word of God. And one of the ways I'll demonstrate that is just by picking up a book of the Bible and starting to work through it verse by verse. So you can go ahead and begin turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start in Mark, the first chapter and the first verse. Honestly, what could be better for a first sermon series than, than, than to take a look at the life of Jesus Christ? Because if you're paying attention, Jesus is he's kind of cool again these days. Uh, everybody's talking about Jesus. There's all these silly t-shirts, Jesus t-shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. Um, Dan Brown is writing silly books about Jesus conspiracies. Um, people think Jesus was this great moral teacher, or he was this great prophet in a long line of prophets. Um, the National Geographic Channel, the History Channel, they have all these shows about Jesus. He's been on the front page of Newsweek. There are Broadway shows about Jesus. Everybody has some kind of opinion about who Jesus is. So what I want to do for the next little while here at Woodside is, is explore what the only reliable source that we have says about Jesus, and, and that's the Gospels in the Bible. Because if, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said that he did, that changes absolutely everything for everyone who has ever lived. You, you've got to at least consider what this guy had to say. 
So this morning, we're just going to look at one verse, the very first verse of Mark, Mark 1.1. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, which is really convenient this week because it's exactly the same as the King James Version, so you can follow along in, in whatever you want. And if you um, open up in your bulletin, you'll find that there are some, there's some space for notes and kind of some bullet points if you want to take notes and follow along. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, short and sweet. This is God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that it is inspired by you, and we thank you that you speak to us and you work through it. So, Father, right now I pray that um, I would accurately and faithfully um, expose your word and explain your word. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning, um, but I pray that we wouldn't just be informed, but that we would be transformed, Father. Uh, by your word. And, and I can't do that, Father. I, I have no ability whatsoever to, to change a heart or convict of sin or any of those things. Only you, through your spirit, can do those things. So, Father, we ask that you would be here with us this morning. Focus our minds and our hearts on Jesus Christ. I pray that you get all of the glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, before we get into the verse itself, we've got to do a, just, a, just a minute or two of kind of some of the boring stuff. Whenever you start a new book of the Bible, it kind of helps to to know a little bit of the information about the book, like the author and, and when it was written and, and why he wrote it and stuff kind of like that. If, if we know that basic information first, it'll kind of help us down the line as we work through some of this stuff. So first, who wrote the book? Well, that one's pretty easy. You don't, you don't pay me to, to figure that one out. It's called the Gospel of Mark, right? So everyone says, everyone believes Mark wrote this book. We don't know a ton about Mark. He shows up a fair number of times in the New Testament. But we do know that he, he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples, was he? So, so where did Mark get all of this information? Now, church history is almost unanimous kind of in the belief that Mark's gospel comes primarily from the stories and, and the memories and the experiences of Peter. One of the earliest church fathers, just a little bit after Mark, he wrote that, he says, Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. So Mark's source was Peter. And what better source could you have? Because Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was kind of the leader of, of the twelve. And so Mark wrote the book, but he relied on Peter for its content. So some people could argue that you could call this the gospel of Peter, because all the information is, is coming from Peter, kind of fed through Mark. Second, why did Mark write it? Who did he write it for and why? Matthew, if you go read Matthew, pretty clearly written for the Jews. Mark is the exact opposite. Is very clearly written for, for the non-Jews, for the Greeks, for the Gentiles. Which is why this book is perfect for us, because we're mostly just a large group of, of Gentiles. So Mark is speaking directly to us. And church history also tells us that, that Mark wrote this to a very specific group of, of Gentile Christians a long time ago. And it was the Christian church in Rome. All right, so Mark wrote this book, and he delivered it to the people in Rome. It was a very persecuted, small bunch of Christians... And it did so about the year 60 A.D. All right, so you got Jesus from about 30 to 33. Right? And then about 30 or less years later, Mark is writing this gospel about Jesus. All right, some people say that's a long time. But, but as gospels, as biographies go, that's actually really close to the source. Right? People today are putting out books about Abraham Lincoln and they're writing books about Martin Luther and they're writing books about the Apostle Paul hundreds of years later. Mark wrote this book about Jesus just 20 or 30 years after Jesus, while all of Jesus' closest followers and, and friends were still alive. So you have a, a very close, accurate, reliable source on the life of Jesus. So you can really trust kind of what Mark had to say about, about Jesus. And there are a number of things about Mark that I really like. 
Because listen, it, let's be honest. Who would actually say that their favorite gospel is, is Mark? No, nobody. Everybody loves Matthew, and everybody loves John, and then some people love Luke, and, and poor little Mark kind of gets left out. It's like the fourth forgotten gospel. But I, I think that's sad. I really like Mark, and there are a number of things about it that really distinguish it and set it apart from the other, from the other gospels. First one, Mark is a book of action. Right? It doesn't read kind of like dry, boring theology. It's not a bunch of kind of theological discourse and teaching and all this stuff. Mark is a little bit different. He portrays Jesus not primarily as a teacher, but as a doer. Now, of course, Jesus was a teacher. We know Jesus was constantly going around and teaching. We see that in Matthew and John. But Mark's emphasis is on Jesus as a man of action. It focuses primarily on who he was and what he did and not what he says. So we kind of get a different picture of Jesus in this gospel. And Mark, if you read it, it's kind of exhausting. It moves at a breakneck pace. You'll, you'll notice that Mark is constantly using this one word over and over again. He says, immediately. He says it 42 times in this short little book. It's, Jesus did this, and then immediately he's off doing this. Jesus did this, and immediately he went and did this. It's constantly moving. Action, action, action. And Mark is also a lot shorter than the other Gospels. Only 16 chapters, and, and pretty much everything that is in Mark is also in Matthew and Luke with, with more detail and with more teaching. Why is that? Because Mark, is, he, he doesn't mess around. It, it, he's no frills. It's very short and compact and gets to the point. And that's what I really like about it. Think about it like this. Matthew and Luke, they're kind of like big Hollywood blockbuster movies. Right? They have these massive budgets. So there's all this detail and these amazing sets and effects and all these crazy costumes. It's big and it's huge and it's this nice looking production. But Mark is more like a play. It's got a very simple, small, sparse set and backdrop. So what does that do? It gets rid of all of this distracting stuff out here and it focuses you very much on the actors. Right? It takes away everything else back here and it just, boom, puts you on Jesus. Focuses you on the actors. Mark is completely and solidly just about Jesus and what Jesus does. And that's what I really like about it. So it gives us a really good and, and important picture of who he was and what he was like. So remember, Mark, not so much about Jesus' teaching, but about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So, so this Jesus that Mark portrays demands a response from us because he is a man of action. There is, there is no neutral position when it comes to Jesus. Mark shows us Jesus and the claims of Jesus and then demands that we choose a side. It's, it's an exciting, action-packed book, and I think it's going to be very beneficial for us to study it together. So it was a lot of introduction, but, but I think it will help us down the line to kind of lay some of that framework. So let's look at our one verse this morning, and we'll spend the rest of the time there. I'll read it one more time. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark starts with a very important word. It opens up in the Greek with just the word beginning. There's, there's no the in the Greek. It just says beginning. What does that make you think of? Genesis, obviously. Mark, Mark's no dummy. He's doing this very purposefully. He, he's tying Mark all the way back to the Old Testament and to Genesis. He, he's linking the story about Jesus that is to come with the story of Genesis. So like in Genesis, God is now about to start a whole new creative work. Genesis is about the beginning of a physical creation of the earth and the universe. Mark 
is about the beginning of the new creation, of spiritual rebirth, which happens through Jesus Christ. So by using the word beginning, Mark is making a declaration. He's signifying that something significant is happening, something big, something very new. Just as the beginning in Genesis affected absolutely everything, so this new beginning will also affect and change absolutely everything. So what is this new significant something? It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And you're going to hear us talk about this a lot. You can get a lot of gospel from up here. And, and gospel is its kind of a cool, hip buzzword these days. Everybody is talking about gospel this and, and gospel that. And somebody is publishing a new book about gospel something every day. There are books about gospel-centered ministry, gospel-centered work, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered ping pong. Kind of whatever you want to come up with, someone is attached gospel-centered to the front of it. So let's make sure and define gospel from the beginning so that, so that we know we're all on the same page as a church. The gospel. It's a Greek trans, it's a transla- English translation of the Greek word evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism from. And gospel quite simply means good news. Now this wasn't a new word that the, that the writers of the New Testament created. This word was already in use. When, when Roman generals would come back from a big battle and they were victorious, they would enter the city and they would declare the good news of their victory. When Caesar Augustus was born, just a little bit before Jesus, they, they proclaimed it as good news. So that's what gospel generally meant at the time. But, but this isn't any old gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. The name Jesus in Hebrew was just Joshua. Joshua, Jesus, same name. And it means Yahweh, which is God's name. God's personal name is Yahweh. It means Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. Yahweh is salvation. And we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Mark that Yahweh is salvation is a perfect summary of the book. And it brings to my mind Jonah 2.9, which says the exact same thing, which says salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And we see the same word for good news back in the Old Testament. Right? It's not just a New Testament thing. Isaiah uses it. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he writes in Isaiah 52, 7. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. It's the same word, good news. And notice what the good news is about in Isaiah. It's about peace and happiness and salvation and the reign of God. Well, Mark 1.1 is what Isaiah was talking about all of those years before. He is talking about the coming of God's saving work in Jesus. For Mark, the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of the good news proclaimed by Isaiah and all the other prophets. The gospel is about salvation. And when it comes to salvation, as Jonah 2.9 and as Jesus is very name proclaims, it is something that is wholly dependent on God for its planning, its execution, and its application. But, right, we're talking about salvation. What does is, what is talking about salvation imply? It implies that there is something that we need saving from. Good news implies the existence of some sort of bad news. And in fact, the, the good news of Jesus doesn't quite make as much sense until we understand the bad news first. So pretty quickly, as we, as we work through Mark, we're going to see what the bad news is, and we're going to see just how serious the bad news is. But let's talk about it just for a second so we can kind of set the stage. I wanted to spend a lot of time here, but 
for, for your sake, so I'll keep you here for an hour and a half. I, I had to cut it back. Um, so the bad news is quite simply that we're sinners and that our sin has separated us from God, who is the very source of life and all that is good. So if sin separates us from the source of life, what is the clear consequence of sin? Then? It is death. Separation from life equals death. Now there's a whole lot there that, that I don't have time to unpack, but as we go through this book, I promise that I'm going to. And if you're here and, and you're not a Christian and all this talk about sin and all that kind of crazy stuff is a little bit weird, kind of bear with me. We'll, we'll come back and, and we'll talk a little bit more about what sin is and, and why we're all sinners. But, but the point is, the Bible very clearly says that you're a sinner and that I'm a sinner and that the punishment for that sin is death. We're all separated from God and we're all going to die that way. That's the bad news. And that's where the good news comes in, the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus, quite simply, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the place of sinners. That's it. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus in the place of sinners. But again, you could spend years preaching just on that sentence, kind of on the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's, there's so much there, but I want to kind of lay out a basic definition that we're going to come back to Every week, we're always going to be talking about the gospel. The gospel is the saving activity of God in Jesus Christ. It tells us that that God takes the initiative. God enters into the story himself, and he rescues us. And he does so by sacrificing his son in our place. The gospel is about God. God is the gospel. And make sure you understand how unique this is among every other religion out there. Okay, there's, there's nothing else like the gospel. Religions operate, every one of them, on this one same principle. They say, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. Alright, that's what religion teaches. I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. The gospel teaches the exact opposite. It says, I am accepted by God because of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. You see the difference. In religion, obedience comes first. And then God looks on us and says, all right, good job, I'll save you. The gospel says, no, Jesus Christ saved you. And by out of gratitude, then you turn around and then you obey. But be careful. It's not just these other world religions that kind of get this wrong. Sometimes Christians kind of mistake the gospel a little bit. Being a Christian becomes a list of things that that we have to do to be saved. You you have to sing this kind of music. You have to read this kind of Bible translation. You can't watch movies. You can't listen to this kind of music. You you can't associate with those kind of people. You do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. And then you can be a Christian. But that's not the gospel. That is not what the Bible says Christianity is. We're not good people and then God comes in and saves us. We don't get our life in order and and get all clean and pure and good so that then he'll come save us. No, we don't do anything to earn our salvation. The Bible says that we are God's enemies. One of the hymns says we are guilty, vile, and helpless we. But God saves us anyways. I think I mentioned this last time I was here. We can remember the gospel with just four easy words. Jesus in my place. That's basically the gospel summed up. Jesus in my place. He takes the place of sinners. That's the gospel. God saves us through Christ, not because we're good, not because we deserve to be saved, but because he is good and merciful. So the gospel clearly must be of first importance because it is how God saves us. 
It is the power of God for salvation. But that's actually not all that it is. It's, it's even more. It's even better than that. So make sure and pay attention here because many people don't get the gospel wrong, but they kind of constrain or, or limit the gospel. They act as if the gospel saves them. All right, I've been saved by the gospel. And then they turn to something else to kind of keep living the Christian life. The gospel gets you in, and then you do all these other things to, to be good or to, to stay sanctified or to earn your salvation afterwards. But that's not how it works. Just, just go and read Paul. Look at Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He is constantly preaching the gospel to people who already know the gospel. He's constantly reminding people about the gospel. Why? Because the gospel doesn't just save us, it sustains us, it shapes us, it grows us. The gospel does everything. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul again, uh, 15 verses 1 and 2. He writes, listen to this, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you already received. Alright, that's all past tense. Right? He's already preached the gospel to them. They've already accepted and received that gospel. Past tense. That's something that happened back there. But then he keeps writing. He says, in which you stand. Right? That's what's called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is just an action that happened in the past, but the effects of that event in the past carry on into and affect the future. So the gospel saves them in the past, and then it sustains them in the present. And then Paul keeps going. And by which you are being saved. That's the present tense. The gospel saves us and then it continues to save us, to preserve us, and to sustain us. The gospel is all about the past, the present, and the future. We're, we're never done with the gospel. You never move past the gospel. It is critical to our personal lives and it is critical to the life of this church. The church will rise and fall based upon our dependence on God, His Word, and the gospel. And notice in our text that, that it's the gospel of who? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's not the gospel of you. It's not the gospel of me. It's not about us. It's about him. Honestly, you are not the point. I am not the point. God is the point. And sometimes people kind of get that confused, especially with the pastor sometimes, right? I mean, I'm the only one standing up here. You're all looking at me. You're all kind of listening to me, waiting to see what I'm going to say. But, but let me make that perfectly clear. I am not the point. In the grand scheme of things, honestly, I'm a nobody. And in a hundred years, no one is going to remember who Matthew Shores was. Compared to most people, you know, I don't really amount to much. But, but compared to God, I am absolutely nothing. On the scale of importance, with God at the top, I don't even register. And I think kind of Paul says this. Listen to his word in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. He writes, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything, as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. The only reason you should ever listen to me is when I accurately explain what God says in His Word. That's where my authority comes from. It's not from me, it's from God. It's not about us. It's not about you and me. The Gospel is about God and what He has done for us through Jesus Christ, His Son. Sometimes people with really good intentions, they'll, they'll tell you that the gospel is that you're a sinner and that you need to believe in Jesus to be saved. The only problem with that is that that's not what the Bible says the gospel is. 
The Bible says that the gospel is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is God's self-substitution for sinners. It's about what God has done for us, not what we do to save ourselves. It's what God has done to save us. It is then in response to the gospel that God calls us to repent and believe. So the gospel is that God has come in and saved us through Jesus Christ. And then we respond to that gospel by repenting and believing. God's saving activity in Christ. That is the gospel. Our response is repentance and belief. So this book, this, this gospel of Mark, it's, it's not about us. It's about what Jesus, it's about Jesus and what he has done. But remember, we said at the beginning that Jesus demands some sort of decision on our part. We either accept him or we reject him. There's no position of neutrality with Jesus whatsoever. You're either on his team or you're not. And Mark is going to take 16 chapters to make it abundantly clear that the only position that makes any sense when it comes to Jesus is absolute submission to Jesus as Lord and God. Let's keep going. Mark doesn't just call it the gospel of Jesus and stop. He gives us a little bit more explanation. He says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Have you ever, kind of like me, every now and then skipped to the end of the book to kind of see what would happen and then kind of went back and read the book kind of to get to the end, right? Or you've seen one of those movies that it shows you the end at the beginning and then the rest of the movie is kind of explaining what led up to that point. Like the movie Saving Private Ryan, right? It opens with Private Ryan. He's there, he's old, he's alive. Right? So you know what happened. You know he survived. But then it goes back and it explains to you kind of what happened and how it got to that point. The book of Mark is kind of like that. Mark basically ruins the story for us at the beginning. He reveals to us from the get-go who Jesus is. He's the Christ and he's the Son of God. Now I spent too much time in the introduction on the gospel to really get into these two terms. But the whole book of Mark is an unpacking of what Christ and Son of God means. So we're going to spend a lot of time on those. But first, let's look at him really quickly. He's the Christ. Right? Now, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, like Shores is my last name. Okay? A lot of people think that. Christ is a title. Christ is just the Greek word of, for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. Christ is Messiah, which means anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three groups of people that would be anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. And to be anointed in the Old Testament was to be set apart by God. It was God kind of saying, all right, this person is set apart to do a special work for me. And it demonstrated that God had chosen this individual. And a lot of people throughout the Old Testament were anointed. But if you kind of go back and and you start to read the Old Testament, you, you kind of start to pick up on all of these references to the coming of one particular individual of great significance. The Messiah. The anointed one. And this Messiah would be the prophet, priest, and king, all wrapped up into one person. And there are way too many passages in the Old Testament that even begin to scratch the surface of of what it said about the Messiah. But let me look at just one, read you just one real quick so we can just kind of get a little taste. This is from Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. In a famous passage about the Messiah, it says, "For For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and with justice from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the Messiah. 
And at the time of Jesus' coming, Israel was, was under the yoke of the Romans. The Romans controlled Israel. And Israel was, was longing, they were angry, they were ready, waiting for God's promised Messiah that would come and free them from that bondage. And Mark tells us very clearly that Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah, the one that would bring salvation. But as we start to work through Mark, we're going to see that this Jesus was completely different than anything these people expected. The next Mark tells us that he's also the Son of God. And again, we're going to run through this a lot in Mark, so we'll talk about it a lot more. But one of the primary places we see that in the Old Testament is in 2 Samuel 7. You don't need to turn there, but God is establishing a covenant with King David. And he comes to David and he says that he's going to send him a son way down the line who God will establish David's throne forever and ever through, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. And about this one to come, God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. As the father is divine, so is the son. Like father, like son. This title is an absolute um, claim to the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is not just some sent anointed man. He is God. And we'll see this played out through the book of Mark. Jesus teaches and he ministers with an authority that only God possesses. He does things that only God can do. But as you start reading the book, you start to notice that really Mark is all about one thing. It's all leading towards the cross. Everything Jesus does is on the way to the cross. And you can't really understand what Son of God means until you get to the cross in Mark. The cross is the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ as God's Son. Jesus is God come to die in the place of sinners like you and like me. In no other religion are you going to find God substituting himself in the place of men and women. Jesus is completely unique. He is fully God and fully man. He is exactly what we need. And he is the only one that can save us. Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And Mark shapes his book expertly to, to kind of make that very clear to us. Mark breaks down really nicely into two even halves. You have the first chapter, the first half, chapters 1 through 8, are about Jesus' identity as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then it culminates in what we read earlier, in 8.29, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And then the second half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, is all about Jesus' mission, all about his purpose, his, his mission to come and die as the Son of God on the cross. And that culminates then with the second verse we read in, in 1539, with, with the centurion declaring, sure, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the true historical Jesus. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the rightful king coming back to reclaim his throne. And he is the Son of God. He is divine. And he comes to stand in the place of his people and die for them. As Jesus is without doubt the most unique and significant figure in all of history. So I challenge us for a while. Let's come back. Let's explore this Jesus. And, and let's see that, that there is no one else like him. No one else taught as he taught. And no one else actually gave his life to save sinners. So, so that is Mark 1.1. Right? That's a lot for just that one little verse. But it kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book. Mark 1.1 is kind of the... the purpose statement or the theme of the entire book. So the rest of the book is all about figuring out what it means that Jesus is the Messiah 
and the Son of God. And, and we want to explore that because we want to learn more about Jesus so that we can love him more. Think about it. My wife's going to start blushing, so don't look back at me. Think about Melissa, all right? I was instantly smitten when I met Melissa, okay? Let me just look at her, right? Look at the hair. So I instantly fell in love with her, already looking down. She's already red, so I apologize. But I, was, I met Melissa and instantly fell in love with her, right? But I didn't know anything about her, did I? It was just kind of an initial infatuation with a beautiful woman that, let's be honest, I felt I had no chance whatsoever of landing, all right? So miracles do happen, okay? But I didn't know anything about her, did I? But I still really liked her. But then I started to get to know her. And then, man, then, then I was really hooked. As, as, as I started to get to know her, I fell further and further in love with her. Then I got to watch her interact with my friends and my family. A whole new side of her came out. I started to love her more. And then all of a sudden, years later, Emma comes to the picture, and I get to watch her raise and interact with her child. A whole other part comes out of her. I learn and learn more about her, and I start to love her more and more. I know Melissa better than I know any person in the world, and I know Melissa better than any other person in the world knows Melissa, but I will never exhaust the knowledge of Melissa. There will always be new things about Melissa that I will be learning. Now, take that example of Melissa and then multiply it by about a billion, and, and then you've got Jesus, all right? Most of us, when we are saved by God, we know so little about Jesus Christ. We know the kind of the basic story. We're drawn to him. We are truly thankful for, for what he has done for us on the cross, but we haven't even started to scratch the surface of who he is. And now Jesus isn't here anymore. At the end of Mark, Jesus leaves. He, he returns to heaven. So the only way that we learn more about Jesus is through the Bible, God's divinely revealed record of Jesus. And the more we study Jesus, the more we learn about Jesus, aided by the Holy Spirit, then the more we begin to fall in love with Jesus. I don't know how many times I've, I've read the book of Mark. It, it's a lot. But, but every time I read it, I learn something new about Jesus. God's word and Jesus, so much more than Melissa, are utterly inexhaustible. We will never know everything there is to know about God and Jesus Christ. We must always be learning, always be growing. And the more we do, the more we will appreciate and love Jesus for who he is and, and what he has done for us. So we preach sermons, we come to church, we study books of the Bible, not just because that's what Christians have always done, but we study them to know God, and in knowing God, to love Him more. If listening to sermons, if, if reading books of the Bible, if studying and learning about Jesus is boring to you, uh, we might have a problem. I want us to leave here every Sunday morning having learned something new about Jesus. But not just learned something but being transformed by that something and loving and praising God because of that something that we learned. That's the goal here, learning for the sake of worshiping. We preach sermons and we come to church to learn about and love God more fully. And in so doing, we glorify and we honor God. God is the point. We are not. So, so how does all this kind of relate to Woodside Community Church and kind of my, my new beginning here kind of as an interim pastor? Because, because as long as I'm here, I want everything that we do to be rooted in the gospel and the word of God. We have to get into the practice of letting God's word shape absolutely everything that we do. We have to step back and look at everything that we do, everything that we want to do, and then examine it through the lens of Scripture. It is only in Scripture that we learn about God. 
and what he wants for our lives and, and how he wants us to worship him. So it should only be scripture that acts as the judge and the standard for what and how we do things at Woodside Community Church. The Bible tells us that we exist to love and to glorify God and to serve God. So we need to look at everything that we do and that we're planning to do and make sure it is glorifying and serving God. That is our first and primary priority, God. But in Matthew 22, Jesus says that there are two great commandments. He says the first is to love God with absolutely everything that we have, and the second is to love our neighbor as if they were ourselves. So two parties, God and neighbor. But I want to break neighbor down into two categories. All right? Uh, first, we're called to love God. And then one of the primary ways we do that is, is in here, is within the church, as we love and serve and work together. And then that love should then spill out as we seek to love and serve our community as well. So three things, love God, love each other, love Woodside. That's what we want to be about. So we must examine everything that we do and ask those three questions. Does this demonstrate love for God? Does this love and serve each other? And does this display the love of God to Woodside or, or help us to effectively reach out to the lost around us in this community? Like Mark 1.1, this is kind of a, a new beginning. Something different is happening. Now, I'm in no way coming in here trying to change everything. Not at all. I'm now one of you. I, I want to work with you and labor with you and serve with you. I don't, it would be a disaster if I tried to come in here and shape this place into my own image. That, that would not be good. But, but with any new beginning, there will be some things that are different. I'm a different person. It's only natural that, that I'll do some things differently than they have been done before. So, so just be ready for some of that. Be patient with me. Bear with me when I make mistakes. Let's, let's give each other the benefit of the doubt. We are all now on the same team. We are all working towards the same goal, which must first and foremost be the glory of God. And then second, how we can best love and serve each other, and then how we can best love and reach this neighborhood. But it all has to start with the gospel. If we get the gospel wrong, if we get the foundation wrong, we're doomed to fail. Nothing we build on top of that messed up foundation will be right. We must be unashamedly about the word of God. God saves us through his word. He teaches us through his word. He reveals himself through his word. He sustains us through his word. He gives us our marching orders through his word. We must be a place where the word of God is absolutely central. And that's why what we'll do every Sunday morning from here is read the word and study the word and explain the word of God. That's what my ministry is going to be about. Teaching the word and proclaiming the greatness of God. If we do those things well, everything else will kind of fall into place. As we close, I want us to, to pray for the church. Let's pray for what God is going to do here. Let's, let's pray that we would be a people committed to and transformed by the gospel. Let's pray for this neighborhood. Let's pray for Woodside, that we can be a light in a dark place, that we can reach this community with the gospel and love and serve our neighbors. Guys, I really am very excited. I'm, I'm excited to, to work here and to labor and serve with you and, and see what God has in store for this church. We're going to work hard. We're going to have fun. We're going to love and serve each other. We're going to love and serve this neighborhood. And ultimately, we're going to love and serve our God and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for sending your Son to, to stand in our place and to die in our place, Father. We deserve nothing but death and separation from you, Father. We had nothing good that we could offer you. But you looked upon us and you had love and you had mercy on us, Father. And you sent us Jesus Christ. 
And now when you look upon us, Father, you see Christ. You have given us his righteousness. You have given us his perfect record. You have given him our, our sin and our death. So we thank you for saving us. Make us a people who are about the gospel, Father. I want to pray for this church. I pray that uh, you would root us in the word. Uh, you would make us all about proclaiming your word. And that everything that we do here will be shaped by your word. I pray for this neighborhood, Father. I pray that um, you would make us a light in a dark place here. That we would reach out to this place. We would help and serve this neighborhood, Father. And we would become a place where people come to hear the gospel. And come to hear the good news. And that you would save people through the ministry of this church, Father. Father, we can do nothing on our own power. We will fail miserably if it's just me trying to do something or if it's just us trying to do something on our own power. Father, we need you and we need you to work and we need your spirit with us, Father. We want to rely completely on you and on your word. So, Father, we want to give you all the glory for everything that you're going to do in this place in the future. We trust you and we love you and we pray that you would bless this place and you would do great things at Woodside Community Church. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.